Well, this morning we are into Matthew chapter 9, and we're going to look at the first 17 verses. That can be found on page number 1508. Again, Matthew chapter 9, verses 1 through 17. Hear the word of the Lord. Jesus stepped into a boat, crossed over, and came to his own town. Some men brought to him a paralytic lying on a mat. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. At this, some of the teachers of the law said to themselves, This fellow is blaspheming. Knowing their thoughts, Jesus said, Why do you entertain evil thoughts in your hearts? Which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Get up and walk? But, so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, then he said to the paralytic, Get up. Take your mat and go home. And the man got up and went home. When the crowd saw this, they were filled with awe, and they praised God, who had given such authority to men. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew, <coughs> excuse me, in a tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him. And Matthew got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners." When John's disciples came and asked him, How is it that we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Jesus answered, How can the guests of the bridegroom mourn while he is with them? The time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. Then they will fast. No one sews a patch of unshrunken cloth on an old garment, for the patch will pull away from the garment, making the tear worse. Neither do men pour new wine into old wineskins. If they do, the skins will burst, the wine will run out, and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins, and both are preserved. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, again, we hear your word, and we see uh, the amazing actions and teachings of Jesus, and we pray, Father, that you would help us understand, help us see his glory, help us see these truths, uh, take them into our hearts that we might live by them, and, and know they're true by faith. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So I imagine that uh, many of you, if not most of you, have probably heard someone say something along the lines of, I'm spiritual, I'm not religious. And typically, if somebody says that, uh, what he or she means by that is that they believe there is such thing as a spiritual realm, 
They just don't think that any particular religious institution or religious authority uh, knows anything about how to describe that realm to us. And so what they do is they go out on their own to learn and discern and figure out the spiritual life all by themselves. Now, within Christianity, we actually have a very similar idea, and it goes like this. You know, Christianity, Christianity is not a religion. Christianity is a relationship. You've probably heard that before as well. And what people mean by that is that Christianity is about having a personal relationship with God more than it is about conforming to a set of rules or practices. And the reason that people resonate with these ideas, and even some of us here, uh, is because there's been so much religious hypocrisy and corruption. We've heard so many stories about pastors and priests using their power and authority for evil that it gets pretty hard to trust someone who claims to have religious or spiritual knowledge or authority. In fact, I would say that our current cultural climate has gotten to the point where we're actually kind of afraid of anybody who claims to have spiritual authority because it feels like they're trying to control us. Another thing that makes it difficult to trust religious authorities is because there's so many different religions out there. There's even so many different expressions of Christianity out there that sometimes it's hard to know which one is true. How can we sort out who the real Christians are and how are we supposed to even tell the difference? If the experts can't decide the right way to practice Christianity, how are we supposed to figure it out? So this is what we tell ourselves. And I'm just generalizing here sort of with like broad evangelicalism, but, but I think this will sound familiar as well. We tell ourselves this. We say, you know, I'm not religious. All I need is me, my Bible, and Christian music to have a relationship with God. Because Christianity is not a religion, it's a relationship. But here's the problem. Here's the problem with the spirituality of me, my Bible, and Christian music. That's practicing a religion. That's claiming to have spiritual authority about how Christianity should be practiced. Do you see that? Think about it this way. Imagine somebody comes up to you and that they really resonate with this idea that you're telling them about being, uh, you know, Christianity being about a relationship and not being a religion. And so then they say to you, well, how, how can I have a relationship with God like you have? And then you say, well, you just need you and your Bible and some Christian... Do you see? You're starting your own new branch of Christianity as soon as we do that. There's no way to answer that question without borrowing the rules from another Christian institution or making up our own answers. And if we do that, guess what? We're the new religious authority. So my point is that it's impossible to be spiritual without being religious because to be spiritual is to be religious. It's impossible to have a relationship with God without religion because having a relationship with God is religious. The question is not whether or not we're religious. 
The question is, are we practicing the religion that the one true God has given us? That's the question. Are we practicing the religion that the one true God has given us? Okay, God had given the Jews the true religion. And the purpose of that religion was to bring them by grace through faith into a saving relationship with Jesus Christ as he was pictured for them through the temple, through the priests, and through the sacrifices. But when Jesus arrived on earth, what he found instead was a corrupt, legalistic, self-indulgent religion that was leading people into pride, either because they were part of the institution or they were participating in it properly, or despair, because they were on the outside, they were on the margins, they couldn't possibly get back in because they were unclean, unwanted. And in our passage this morning, the conflict in the book of Matthew between Jesus and the religious leaders begins. And some people want to use this passage to say that Jesus is doing away with religion. But we're going to see this morning that Jesus is not doing away with religion. He's exposing corrupt religion and pointing people to true religion. Okay, are you with me? I know that was a bit thick of an introduction. Okay, so here's our outline. True religion and forgiveness, and then true religion and purity, and then true religion and spiritual disciplines. So Jesus teaches us here that we seek and receive forgiveness in true religion by simply coming to him by grace through faith. So that's that's what I want to say in my first point here, okay? So going into our opening scene with Jesus and the paralytic, everyone in his entire audience knows that only God can forgive sins and that God was very clear in his law that the only way somebody could seek and receive forgiveness was through the temple, through the priests, and through the animal sacrifices. These are like undisputable religious facts, okay? And the conflict in our passage is between Jesus, who is here to fulfill Old Testament true religion, and to start something new through the church, and the Pharisees who've corrupted Old Testament religion. Okay, with that in mind, let's, let's look at the first two verses. It says, Some men brought to Jesus a paralyzed man, lying on a mat. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the man, Take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. At this, some of the teachers of the law said to themselves, This fellow is blasphemy. So blasphemy is essentially dishonoring God. It's lying about God. It's, it's making up things that aren't true about God. Um, it would be like if somebody were acting like they were God and going around the religion that God had clearly set up, right? So, so Jesus here, he's either God in the flesh or he's blasphemy. There's, there's not any other option whatsoever. And so the Pharisees, because they don't believe he's God in the flesh, their immediate reaction to him forgiving this man's sins is to say, hey, this man must be blaspheming. So who does Jesus think he is, Right? Now, some people say, Jesus is being a revolutionary here. He's getting rid of religion, and he's making it all about a relationship with him. And the bad people are all the religious authorities, like the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. And now we don't need rules or religion or religious institutions. We can all come directly to Jesus, just like the paralytic does here. Which sounds great, But how do we come to Jesus now? 
like the paralytic did then. Where do we find him? How do we know we found the real Jesus? We're not like the paralytic who could go directly to the man that was healing everybody. Do you see how it gets so much more complicated? When we say like, oh, we can all come to Jesus just like this paralytic does. And there's something true about that. But Jesus is no longer in the flesh, walking on the earth. So where do we find him at? How do we know we found the real Jesus? It takes religion to answer those questions. And Jesus isn't here to get rid of the rules or the law. The fact that he forgives this man tells us that God's moral law is still in place and that God requires obedience. And that when we fail, we need forgiveness. And then how can we know that we're forgiven? Well, it takes religion to answer those questions. And Jesus isn't even here to get rid of the Jewish religion. He's here to fulfill it. He's here to get rid of the corrupt, legalistic religion that the Jewish religion had become. You see, God gave the Jews the temple. And the temple, well, that's, that's God's house. That's where God came and, and he dwelt with his people. He was, he was present with them in the temple. But here Jesus is. He's Emmanuel. He's God with us. He's the ultimate temple. God gave the Jews priests who, who were men who could go and who could stand between God and, and the Jewish people and represent the Jewish people before God. But here's Jesus. He's the ultimate priest. He, he's the perfect person to stand between us and God because he is fully man and he is fully God. And then God gave the Jewish people animal sacrifices. But here Jesus is. We're going to read as we go on in Matthew that, that he's going to offer himself on the cross as the ultimate, full, and final, complete sacrifice for sins. And the teachers of the law, they thought he was blaspheming because they thought the temple and the priests and the sacrifices were how God forgave sins. They didn't see that those rituals and practices were signs pointing forward to Jesus the entire time anyway. They were like a model airplane meant to picture for them what the real thing would be like. And now that the real thing is here, those things are not necessary anymore. Their, their purpose has been fulfilled. And God is standing right before them, forgiving sins. So Jesus is not against religion. He's against false, unbiblical, corrupted, man-made religion, which is what the Jewish religion had become, and which, sadly many Christian churches become. But the solution is not to get rid of religion. The solution is to tremble before God's word and let it show us how to practice the true religion that Jesus is giving us. The next question in this passage is, why did Jesus forgive this man instead of healing him? It's very clear. He shows up as a paralytic on a mat, it's very clear that he, that he wants to be forgiven. So Matthew tells us. He goes on, he says, Knowing their thoughts, Jesus said, Why do you entertain evil thoughts in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk? But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the paralyzed man, Get up, take your mat, and go home. And then the man got up and went home. When the crowd saw this, they were filled with awe, 
And they praised God who had given such authority to man. So it's a lot easier to say your sins are forgiven than it is to say, take up your mat and walk. Because if you, if you say, take up your mat and walk, and then the person doesn't take up their mat and walk, then it's pretty obvious that you have no power, no authority. But if you say your sins are forgiven, well, that's invisible. No one can know if that's actually occurred or not. And so he forgives this man because that's what he came to earth to do, right? He came to save his people from their sins. His main reason for coming was not to heal our sick sinful bodies that are going to die someday anyway. But he heals this man so that we would know that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins. You see, we suffer in sick, broken, dying bodies as a result of sin. And since our bodies are made from the dust of the ground, which God cursed in the fall, our sickness and our sores and our diseases are all a parable of what sin looks like on our soul. Our physical death is a model airplane showing us what spiritual death really looks like. And since Jesus has authority to heal, we can be assured that he can forgive our sins as well. But how do we come to know now that our sins are forgiven? How do we come to Jesus like this paralytic did? Well, we come to him directly by grace through faith. But since he's not physically present with us, how do we know that we have come to the right Jesus? Well, he also gives us the church to help us see him. Later in Matthew, he will tell Peter, And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. In the Old Testament, God pictured what he would do in Christ through the temple and the priests and the animal sacrifices. And now he pictures what he has done in Christ through the church as we gather every Sunday. And then he teaches us and reminds us through the preaching of the word and prayer. He gives us baptism and the Lord's Supper so that we can see and know and remember and believe that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins. And remember, Peter says, as you come to him, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. There's the church, right? We come to him as the church, as a religious institution, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So do you see, like this paralytic, we don't come to him alone. We come to him with our friends. Sometimes they have to carry us to him on a mat. And then we come to him together as the church. And as we do, he is building us up into a temple and a priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices. Now, true religion and purity. So Jesus teaches us here uh, that we now seek and receive purity in true religion by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And so we come to Jesus for forgiveness because sin corrupts our soul the way sickness and disease corrupt our bodies, which means it's really important that we keep from sinning and remain pure, which poses a problem, okay? 
how do we go to other sinners and share this message so that they too can be forgiven and made pure without risking being contaminated by them? That's the question here, right? So, so let's read. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him. And Matthew got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? So a tax collector was a traitor. Uh, He was somebody who collected taxes from the Jewish people uh, on behalf of the Romans, lining his pockets as he did so, uh, basically betraying his own countrymen and betraying his own soul, really, just to get rich. And so in calling Matthew, what's being pictured here is just how infinite Jesus' mercy and his forgiveness are. Because tax collectors were absolutely the most hated people in, in Israel. And yet Jesus calls one of them to come and be one of his followers. But then it gets even crazier. Because Matthew throws a party and Jesus and his disciples all go. And so now Jesus is sitting down and eating with tax collectors and sinners. And so this is significant because in that culture, uh, to sit down and have a meal with somebody was to say that you um, accepted them. What would you do if you had like a peace treaty with a warring army as the generals would sit down together and have a meal? And that was the sign that there was now harmony and peace in that relationship. And so why would Jesus sit down with sinners and have a meal with them when their whole lifestyle proved that they were enemies of God? Well, because Jesus came to save his people from their sins. Again, some people try to use this story and they say, look, Christianity is a relationship, not a religion. See, it's not about a bunch of rules. The story proves that if if Jesus were here now, he would be hanging out with homosexuals and drug addicts and prostitutes. Well, I actually don't disagree with that. I'm sure that's true. If Jesus were here, he would sit down to a meal with homosexuals, drug addicts, and prostitutes. And we should be the kind of people who are willing to sit down to a meal with them too. But that doesn't mean we approve of that behavior. That doesn't mean we don't care about risking our own moral purity. It doesn't mean that Jesus has gotten rid of the law and that he doesn't have rules for his people anymore and that he's getting rid of religion or that he now approves of drug use and sexual immorality. All those assumptions sometimes get smuggled into this picture of Jesus sitting down and eating with tax collectors and sinners. But Paul says this. He says, do not be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. So which is it? Are we supposed to go and spend time and eat a meal with tax collectors and sinners? Or are we supposed to avoid tax collectors and sinners because bad company corrupts good morals? Which is it? Well, here's here's the biblical answer. Our primary social relationship should be with other Christians. The Christianity is not a religion, it's a relationship crowd, uses this passage to justify leaving the church and all the hypocrites and going off by themselves to be like Jesus and to be with tax collectors and sinners. But I I want us to notice something. Jesus' primary social relationships 
were with his disciples and his followers. Those were the people that Jesus was with every single day. And I want you to know something else. When Jesus sits down at a meal with tax collectors and sinners, guess who else is there? His disciples, right there with him, eating a meal with tax collectors and sinners. And so this, this, the question in this story is not whether or not we should eat with tax collectors and sinners too, because the answer to that question is, it depends. It depends. If you're an alcoholic, and you're using this passage to justify going to the bar on Friday night, to, to eat with tax collectors and sinners, I would encourage you that that is not wise. You ought not to do that. If you have a sexual addiction and you want to go to Thailand and minister to people coming out of the sex trafficking trade, I would say probably not the best choice of ministries for you. Because true religion still cares about moral purity. Bad company does corrupt good character. Our closest relationships should be with people in the church who help us remain morally pure. This story isn't about any of that. The story is showing us What corrupt, legalistic religion full of self-righteousness and pride looks like. The modern equivalent would be us being afraid to eat with homosexuals, drug addicts, and prostitutes because we're afraid of what somebody would think about us if we went and had a meal with people like that. The story is about legalistic religion judging other sinners as being so far gone that all they could do is bring us down. Corrupt, false religion cares more about what other people think about us than it does about lost people who are on their way to hell. And so Jesus here shows us what true religion looks like. We have the good news about what he has done to save sinners from their sin, and we should want to share that news with sinners no matter how sinful they are. Because they're the ones who tend to be more aware that something is wrong with them. Jesus goes on and tells the Pharisees, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. And we all know that the only truly spiritually healthy person is Jesus. But there are people who are righteous in their own eyes. There are people who are too blind to see that they need the forgiveness and mercy that Jesus is offering them. And to people like that, Jesus says, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. This is a quote from Hosea chapter 6, where God was condemning the Old Testament religious leaders for going through the motions and offering sacrifices without a heart of mercy. You see, God doesn't want our outward religious performance. He, wants, he doesn't want legalistic, corrupt, man-made religion. Whether that's spending time with homosexuals, drug addicts, and prostitutes, because we want everyone to know how edgy, hip, and cool we are because we've thrown off the old traditional religion, or avoiding spending time with them because we are afraid of what people will think of us. Do you see how we can fall off on either side? And we see both of those in our culture. And actually, I would say, more and more, we're seeing the first one. Where everybody thinks like, no, Jesus wants me to go, and I'm going to be all edgy, hip, and cool. And really, that person is endangering themselves. Because they've left the flock. They've left the fold. 
Either way, it's still self-righteous, outward, moral, religious performance. God wants our heart. He wants us to be merciful to sinners like he's been merciful to us. For some of us, that will mean there are certain sinners we should not spend time with because we are too easily influenced by them. For others of us, that means we must, we must get out of our comfort zone and go and spend time with sinners because we have the good news about the great physician that they desperately need. Finally, true religion and spiritual disciplines. So the purpose of spiritual disciplines is to help us learn to practice true religion by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. So in modern evangelicalism, which we've all sort of been reared in, uh, spiritual disciplines have become quite a fad, and and maybe they still are, I don't know. Uh, For many people, they became the most important way people thought they were supposed to practice the Christian religion. Uh, In a religious environment where people think Christianity is a relationship instead of a religion, this makes a lot of sense. I don't need the church. All I need is my quiet time with me, my Bible, and Christian music. We were told that you've got to have a quiet time. You've got to spend time in silence and solitude. You should journal. You, you should join a Bible study in a small group and go on a retreat, meet with a spiritual director, and on and on and on and on, right? And all those things become things that other Christians might use to make us feel guilty if we're not doing them. But here's the thing about spiritual disciplines, including a quiet time. The Bible never commands us to do a single one of those things. Now, that doesn't mean we should not do them. They're actually really good for us. It just means we're not commanded to do them. They can help us practice true religion, but they are not necessarily one of the practices of true religion. Let me give you an example. Let's say that you want to become a a better golfer. Practices of becoming a better golfer, that's working on your swing, uh, that's, you know, learning how to, you know, look at the greens and, you know, the different levels of it and so where you can hit the ball, you know, all these things, right? Meeting with a, a swing instructor, that's all part of practicing true golf, okay? But things that might help you be a better golfer is uh, strength training, working out, having a better diet, right? Those are all things that can help you practice true golf, but none of those things have anything to do with true golf. This is why John Daly can be on the PGA Tour, right? He practices none of those things, and yet he can still be an amazing golfer because it's not part of what it means to be a true golfer. And it's the same thing with this. Spiritual disciplines are things that help us learn to practice true religion, but they're actually not part of the practices of true religion, okay? So John the Baptist, he lived in the wilderness. If you remember, his clothes were made of camel's hair. He had a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. John the Baptist was obviously a very disciplined man. He taught his disciples to be very disciplined. And it wasn't long after Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist that he was arrested and he was put in prison. And obviously, John the Baptist's disciples are all still following his very disciplined practices that he had left with them. And then we're told that John's disciples came and asked Jesus, How is it that we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? And John's disciples are working hard here, right? They're trying to keep up the pace that John set for them before he was put in prison. And they knew that John really looked up to Jesus. And here Jesus is, and he's not having his disciples do all the really hard practices that they were doing. And they're just wondering, like, why? Why is that? And so Jesus says, 
How can the guests of the bridegroom mourn while he is with them? The time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. Then they will fast. So notice, even here, Jesus does not command his disciples to fast. He says they don't need to now because he's here with them. So, the purpose of spiritual disciplines is to help us practice true religion, and the true religion leads us to Jesus. But if you're already with Jesus, you don't need any of that. You don't need any of it, because you're with him. Being with Jesus is the end of true religion. It's the goal of it. And here the disciples are in his presence. But after he's gone, which of course is after his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension back into heaven, then, Jesus says, they will fast. Notice he doesn't say they must fast. He says they will fast. And here's what this teaches us about spiritual disciplines. Spiritual disciplines are for people who are hungry to know Jesus. They help us learn how to put to death our sin so that we can practice true religion by obeying Jesus' actual commands. They help us learn how to let go of the physical world so that we can take hold of the spiritual world. Spiritual disciplines are for the person who, for example, struggles with anger and wants to learn how to become the kind of person who is less angry. They might study and memorize passages about anger and what's going on in the heart of an angry person. They might fast and pray and ask God to change their heart. Spiritual disciplines can help us focus our spiritual senses when we're seeking God in prayer and for wisdom. But they are an inference from Scripture, like, like journaling, right? We're never commanded to journal in Scripture, but over time, the church has discerned that that can be a really helpful spiritual practice. But they are never essential practices of true religion, like going to church, keeping the Sabbath, Baptism, the Lord's Supper, fellowship with other Christians, telling the truth, being morally pure, loving our enemy, taking care of widows and orphans, all of those things are things we're commanded to do as practices of true religion. And so if we're neglecting those things so we can do our spiritual disciplines, Jesus is saying here, we've got it backwards. We've got it backwards. They're wonderful things to help us learn to practice true religion, but they should never replace it. Remember, Jesus desires mercy and not sacrifice, and spiritual disciplines can so easily become a sacrifice that makes us feel very religious. But if they're not leading us to mercy, then we've lost the point of them. Our quiet time, which we are never commanded to do, can never replace attending church, which we are commanded to do. They are a good thing. They help us train, but they are not the ultimate thing. This is why Jesus says his disciples will fast. He knows his true disciples will desire to know him and obey him and rest in him, so much so that they will train their minds and their bodies through fasting to be better able to do that. But spiritual disciplines can also be dangerous because they give us the feeling of being very religious. And for people who like to feel religious and pious and good, they can be very intoxicating. Finally, Jesus concludes the passage this way. He says, No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch will pull away from the garment, making the tear worse. Neither do people pour new wine into old wineskins. If they do, the skins will burst, the wine will run out, and the wineskins will be ruined. 
No, they pour new wine into new wineskins, and both are preserved. So we finally arrived at the point of, that Jesus has been driving at this entire time. Right? He's here with new wine, and new wine requires new wineskins. The old wineskins of the old covenant are no longer necessary. They fulfilled their purpose, or they've been corrupted, one or the other. And Jesus is here with a new wineskin right, to pour his new wine into and that is the thing, the thing we must focus on, right? The new wineskin is the new covenant. It's the, it's the kingdom of God that he's inaugurating. And the, and the church is the expression of that here on earth. And, and the beauty of this passage, the beauty of these verses here, is that Jesus is telling us that the new wineskin has come. The new wines are here, and we find it in this place. There is a, another aberrant teaching out there now where people tell us, no, we need to be looking for the new wineskins that Jesus is giving us now. We need to be open to the Spirit and, and see what he's doing now. What's the new thing that he's doing now? And, I, and that is folly. That is us looking for the new and the novel because we're intoxicated by the new and the novel. But now we look and we see that he has come. He's inaugurated the kingdom with his life, his death, his resurrection. He's given us the new wine and the new wineskins. And he's calling us to trust the institution, the church that he has set up and to rest in him and to rest in him alone. Let's pray. Father, we come to you now and we, and we thank you. We thank you for Christ. We thank you for his teaching. We thank you for what he's done. And Father, this, this morning's sermon was a little more polemical than I usually like to get. But Father, we're dealing with deception in our world, and it creeps in on us. Help us, Father, to focus on the simple institution of the church that you have given us, the means of grace that you have clearly given us, and the practices of true religion that you have given us, that you empower us to do by your Spirit. Help us to refrain from seeking what is new and novel, just for new and novelty's sake, which can tend to bring us into the philosophies of this world but help us to focus on what is tried and true and good and stable and has been so for the last 2,000 years since Christ left us because he promised to build his church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.